0: episode 312, Radically Improving Population Health. Listen and learn from one of our country's best-kept secrets. Today, I speak with Dr. Douglas Eby.
1: American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value.
0: This episode is a masterclass in raising health outcomes at lower costs from an award-winning healthcare system in Alaska. Who knew? In fact, I learned about the work of the South Central Foundation and the Nuka System of Care only because I happened to listen to Swedish healthcare podcasts and heard about them on one of those shows. Color me surprised when the interview suddenly switched to English and the guest was from Alaska. Here's the short version of what's happening with the Nuka system of care, which serves Alaska Native and American Indian people. They have come as close to the triple aim as I've seen in this country. Health outcomes are superior at costs about half the average. Patients, or as they call them, customer owners, are happy. So are clinicians. How this was achieved, spoiler alert here, was not through incrementally trying to jigger the earlier and pretty much failing model of healthcare delivery that had been going on in Alaska for Alaska Natives at that time. No can do. The Nuka system of care was rebuilt pretty much from the ground up to be for reals, patient and community centric and to be relationship based, not transactional. Behavioral health is a built in, not, you know, like dangling off the back bumper. It's also about assembling a multidisciplinary primary care team, one in which each clinician on the team really can work at the top level of their license. Today, I have the honor and pleasure of speaking with Douglas Eby, MD, MPH, CPE. Dr. Eby is the Physician Executive Vice President of Medical Services, South Central Foundation Nuka System of Care. This episode is sort of two parts. There is the main episode, which you're listening to now, that gets into the sort of how to provide effective healthcare from the provider organization, clinician and kind of community standpoint. In a few days, we'll release an Expert Explains episode where Dr. EB specifically goes over the lessons a self-insured employer might take away from all of this. If you are intrigued by what you hear today, Dr. Eby will also be speaking on July 14th, 2021 at the Aspirational Healthcare Conference, which will be virtual. Go to aspirationalhealthcare.com for more info. Yours truly will be there as well on July 15th, and I'm very much looking forward to it. For those of you into more immediate gratification, Some of the themes that Dr. Eb covers today are expanded on in my interview with Greg McCool, episode 203, about listening to patients, and Daryl Moon, who is the founder of the Aspirational Healthcare Conference. You can hear in episode 305 talking about the 1% year-over-year most expensive claimants and the best way to help them and help your cost management at the same time. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Douglas Eby, MPH, CPE. Welcome to Relentless Health Value.
1: Thank you so much for uh, having me on the program. It's fabulous to be here and look forward to the conversation.
0: As do I. So you work as the medical director of the Southwest Central Foundation Nuka System of Care. Maybe you could just give a, a brief overview of what and where...
1: Yeah, well, the corporation's name is South Central Foundation, and we were created in the early 70s by the settlement between the United States government and Alaska Native people. In Alaska, 20% of the population are Alaska Native, so it's a very large presence. We are the healthcare provider. We have over 2,500 staff, and we support tens of thousands of Alaska Native people. Because our name is not Native or Alaskan. I mean, South Central Foundation could be anywhere. When our approach became a little bit famous, we branded it Nuka, which is an Alaska native word, so that the brand of our product would be both Alaska and Alaska native, but still pronounceable and spellable by lots of people. The word Nuka refers to large, important, and stable things, but also has a part of kind of community and family.
0: You guys have done a remarkable job in moving from a system that, let's just say, didn't produce the best outcomes in the world to one which has gained some renown. I mean, you won the Malcolm Baldrige Award twice. What was just your overarching sort of vision?
1: An awful lot of what we do from facility design to same-day access to how we script out how people should interact, what words they should use, it's all built around this idea that we're raising pride, honor, dignity, self-confidence, and the ability for people to take control of their own health issues. And then we are just advisors, consultants, and partners on that journey. And if you look at the people who consume the highest amount of healthcare resources, it's people with high medical and social complexity, where issues of Controlling one's own destiny, making one's own decisions, and confidence and individual capability are all major conversations to be had if you're trying to get to success.
0: Relative to what the outcomes are, how much have you changed the outcomes of the individuals that you serve? So you alluded to at the very beginning. It sounds like the the care delivery was not anything that anyone would opt to to have. Now you've managed to regain the trust of the majority of the native Alaskans that you serve.
1: Yeah, it's too easy to dismiss us as that tribal place in Alaska that's, you know, kind of unique and different. And the reason why people do pay attention to us is exactly what you're getting at, which is the proof in the pudding. So when we started all of this over 20 years ago, the population-level health outcomes were in the bottom fifth percentile by national comparison. So using the HEDIS data set, which is the U.S. national benchmarks for clinical outcomes, we were in the bottom fifth percentile for the majority of our health outcomes. Our satisfaction ratings among people using the system were low and our staff turnover rates were pretty high. And now, you know, over 20 years later, By having transformed the system into being a customer-driven, customer-designed system with same-day access, very high-quality service levels, and ability to provide service across the entire spectrum of modern medicine, our outcomes are dramatically, radically different. And this is why people do pay attention to our story. Our board set almost 20 years ago the standard of raising from the fifth percentile to the 75th percentile every health outcome and pretty much everything's there now every health outcome by is comparable comparisons is at the 75th percentile or better the satisfaction ratings by people receiving services are you know 98 99% very positive And we also measure things like how self-capable people feel about managing their own conditions and how respected their culture and traditions are and such things. And those scores are also 96 to 99% positive. And then our per capita spend remains at only about two-thirds of the national average and half of the Alaska per capita spend average. And our staff satisfaction rankings put us in the top 25% of healthcare organizations in terms of loyalty and happiness and staff retention. So happier people on both sides of the encounters at a lower than usual cost with dramatically, radically improved health outcomes and as you have mentioned, that's led to a lot of recognition and awards. We remain the only healthcare organization of any kind in the entire United States to win the presidential national Malcolm Aldridge Award twice, which they don't give to you for just being cute and
0: from Alaska. <laughs> well, if that's not the quadruple aim, I'm not exactly sure what is. So you talked about how you did this by changing the system designed to make it more customer driven. What was your starting point? Because I know you basically you know, tossed out the existing model and, and started from scratch to rebuild, which is certainly not a common choice.
1: The very first thing we did when we got control under our community's leadership and our CEO, Catherine Gottlieb at the time, the first thing was a very showy, showy process of listening. So for four months, we did nothing Uh, We kept the system going, but we didn't change anything until we did a very public listening process. So we held like 75 focus groups, did thousands of one-on-one interviews, did tens of thousands of written surveys, just talked to people in lobbies and waiting areas, and talked repeatedly over and over to the staff we had just inherited from the government. All of that was put together then into a list that at the time was called requirements for an ideal health system. So this is what the community and the frontline staff told us we would have to do to create an ideal health system. And even today, it's evolved a little bit, but not much. It's still pretty much the same list. Every decision we make day in and day out and how we design our system is driven by these principles. We literally score ideas for alignment And pursue those that align and don't pursue those that don't align, no matter how widespread that practice may be in modern medicine. What that means is we are consumer driven, consumer designed, and us in management can stand on that and say the reason we do this is because this is what the community wanted. And here's how we know that to be true.
0: And what did the community want? I mean, just like, I don't know how many things are on that list, but what are like the top three or four?
1: So it's like 15 principles. It's access, it's relationship, it's partnering, it's being known. It's every encounter building on previous encounters. It's being strengths-based rather than deficit-based. Modern medicine is incredibly negative and deficit-based. It's getting at the whole family and the whole person and avoiding and minimizing duplication and waste and then holding ourselves accountable. Several of the principles speak to being accountable in terms of measuring and reporting transparently outcomes.
0: The one that really strikes me, and there's several that that strike me, but the one I will ask you about first is, if we're backing up for a moment, you know, one of the things that you have talked about previously is that in most industrialized countries these days, if you ask anybody in medicine, the body is made up of like many parts that aren't necessarily connected you know there's so many ologists
1: right there's two huge problems with modern medicine all across the world one is how money is handled and the us has managed to mess that up worse than any other country but the more dominant problem that exists all around the world is this blind acceptance of the medical model. And the medical model works great for about one third of what it's applied to. So when the patient, as you call them, although we don't really use that word anymore, the people on the receiving side, we refer to as customer owners, but as people receive healthcare, about a third of the time they're passive. So this is like trauma, emergency room, operating room, surgery, so forth. And when people are and modern medicine is applying to them, the miracles of modern medicine, it's fabulous. That's miraculous, amazing, wonderful stuff. But two-thirds of healthcare is driven by people living with chronic conditions, diabetes, HIV, arthritis, asthma, a whole host of things. And so for two-thirds of healthcare, the modern medical model just really doesn't work because as you said, the body is understood to be a machine And if you fix each of the constituent parts, somehow the whole thing is supposed to work well. So you end up with centers of excellence, where for your heart, you go here, for your lungs, you go there, for your diabetes, you go this other place, for your arthritis, you go this other place. And the integrator of all of that is left being the patient or the customer owner and their family. So they might have seven care paths with seven sets of prescriptions, and then they are supposed to Put that all together into their life meaning seven sets of instructions and 20 25 30 medications and no one's the integrator coordinator except the individual in their family and that's just a really really bad plan and alaska native people said they wanted the opposite of that they wanted someone who knew who saw them who knew them who knew their history who knew their story who knew their family who then was their navigator partner advocate and coordinator of everything. So for 20 years, we've established a base of companionship and relationship and then pulled complexity expertise towards that hub rather than sending them from the hub out to lots of other places to get lots of instructions and medications and become confused.
0: Yeah, and even gets more insidious when the care plans are contradictory, which happens a lot. You know, you've got two doctors both prescribing drugs, which are contraindicated, you know, all kinds of bad things happen. It's dangerously suboptimal for sure. The
1: more complicated you are, and the older you are, and the more socioeconomically challenged you are, the more that happens to you, which is exactly the population least able to manage it independently. Statistically, 5% of the population drives 50% of the total cost. 20% of the population drives 80% of the total cost in healthcare, and that 5% or 20% statistically are the least capable of handling it all by themselves, individuals. They're elderly, their minds don't work as well as they used to, or they're socioeconomically challenged, not the most self-confident, independently capable people. And so what we've done at the behest of our whole community is to create intensive, same-day access, immediately available every day of the year, partnering for the whole person, mind, body, back together, In the context of the whole family.
0: There's a lot of people that have aspirationally talked about advanced primary care, direct primary care. There's a lot of different names for robust primary care, what we're talking about here. But at this juncture, in the rest of the world, obviously not by you, it's kind of aspirational to a certain degree. But you already have done this for years. What does your, you know, if we're going to call it advanced primary care, you probably have a better name, but like, what does it look like?
1: We created, so the very first thing we did after listening and creating the principles, the next thing we did was two things. Every single person, tens of thousands of people chose a primary, a name, a person, one primary care provider person who would be their primary care provider and guaranteed same day access all day, every day to that person. Those were our first two steps. And that's very difficult to do. This is not easy. And in order to do that, we also became convinced and remain convinced that you have to have highly capable case management and care coordination or you will drown in reactivity if all you do is react. So from day one, we also created a full-time nurse case manager for every primary care provider one-on-one ratio. And we did this with very little money. We had no unbudgeted money. We just rearranged what we had. So for example, we needed 18 case managers in Anchorage at that time and we only had three. But we had like seven nurses that were nurse managers of clinics. We had three nurses that were immunization nurses, two nurses that were diabetes nurses, a nurse that was an HIV nurse. We had lots of nurses, but they were doing other things. So after some conversation, we declared that we only had one job for nurses in our system, not hospital we're talking about, we're talking outpatient. So all outpatient nurses in our system lost their previous work and became whole person case managers each of them attached to a specific primary care provider and within a few months we had a one-on-one ratio so every customer owner had same-day access to a case manager and a primary care provider that were theirs with no barriers to access for anything they wanted or needed now As you might guess, not all these nurses were thrilled at this change. Some loved doing management and that was the way they got to advance in their career. The one who hated me the most with this change was actually the head immunization nurse because she had her empire that she was the queen of and she was very good at it and we had great immunization rates. So it wasn't all happy, happy by a long shot. But what it was, was putting all our money, all our marbles into one basket and saying, we only have enough money and people to do one approach. And our approach is going to dismantle, actively dismantle disease specific approaches and go instead to companion, partnering, whole person, whole family, integrative, same-day access, primary care. And through that, we would do better with individual diseases, immunization rates, and so forth, which actually turned out to be true. Our immunization rates actually improved, and our management of every chronic condition improved. In fact, our diabetes numbers now put us in the top 1% for the country, and our HIV numbers are the best we've ever seen anywhere in terms of whole population-based numbers 87% of our people with HIV, and we don't get to eliminate anyone, this is a whole population number, but we're at 87% undetectable levels of virus in a very uh, high-risk HIV-positive population.
0: One of the things that you have said and reiterated a couple of times, which is super meaningful, is this idea that by the model that you have evolved into, actually, disease management is better than when people were shuttled off to a COE someplace for that thing. What does that look like? So you've got two people now. You've got the PCP and then you've got this nurse case manager that you were talking about. You know, if I'm a a patient or a customer owner and I show up at my, my PCP or my PCP reaches out to me, How do I get that chronic management? Like what's the PCP doing and what's the nurse case manager responsible for?
1: Very quickly after the initial change, we added a ton of behavioral health capability. So the first big ad, what we call today, BHCs or behavioral health consultants. And the primary care people said, oh, no, we don't really need them. We're good at that. That's why we're in primary care. We said, we'll try it, see how it goes. So we added BHCs and by six months later, they were like, you can never take these people away because they're amazing. And so today, as you approach our system as a customer owner, your primary, your, your most intimate circle is made up of your primary care provider case manager. And then there's two categories of people supporting them, medical assistants, which are the logistics in and out of the visit type people. But the other one is what's called case management support. And they sit right by the case manager. They're from the community. They are not clinically trained, but they're very good support people and they handle lots of the interactions. So your phone calls and emails and texts go straight to the team and it's often that CMS that's helping manage that flow of connectivity and and input. You don't go through a call center, you don't call the front desk, you connect directly to the team and then the team sits all together. We've done a lot of things. For example, we've eliminated all nurses stations, all private offices, everything's in integrated care team environments. So, And the majority of our interactions, even before COVID, were virtual. Email, text, video, only 30% were in person, even before COVID. So you have this team of people who are immediately available to each other and immediately available to the people connecting in for support. And then in our right-sized clinics, and we can talk about how big a clinic should be in some point here, but we've right-sized all of our clinics to feel personal and intimate, but still have economies of scale. So five or six primary care teams are supported by two behaviorists, a dietitian, an integrated clinical pharmacist, and a couple of midwives and a social worker. That every clinic has that collection of people who do not have separate schedules. They're just there to support the primary care team and then share it across clinics we have complexity experts so around across our 10 primary care clinics in Anchorage for example there are four psychiatrists who do not have their own separate schedules they just help the generalists deal with psychiatric complexity type people so four psychiatrists there's a HIV expert i mentioned there's several chronic pain experts so there's a fellowship trained chronic pain specialist, and a 30-year experience chronic pain psychologist, two chronic pain physical therapists. We have an adult complexity expert. She's a super high-end internal medicine doctor with a great deal of diabetes expertise. And we have childhood complexity experts, so like pediatricians who don't have their own panels but help the generalists do a fabulous job with children and, and youth. And then we have home visiting extenders. We used to have a home health agency, but we de-licensed them so we can move them out of oppressive regulatory control. And they're now just extenders into the homes, nurses, nurse practitioners, and lay people that go into homes as extenders of the primary care team. So as you interact with us, all of that's available to you, which means we refer out to specialists 65% less often than we used to. And by the way, other things that happened, you know, over uh, 30% reduction in hospital admissions and hospital days, over 40% reduction in ER use, and we use less medications, labs and radiology.
0: So it's something that like ChenMed does and, you know, like tumor boards do where you get a number of people who are have different expertise and you all get together and you discuss what the best next steps are for any particular individual. It sounds like that's what you're doing. So who's around that table? Is it The PCP is always there, the nurse case manager is always there, the behaviorist is always there, and then whoever seems appropriate of this other, of the various extenders. Yeah,
1: but it's a ballet. It's continual all the time, all day, every day. So it's not that once a week or once a month, there's GI rounds and only three cases get discussed. It's not that. Your generalists who know you and coordinate everything about you pull in whatever expertise is needed in real time. So all these complexity people are available to whoever wants and needs them all in the same day. And then the complexity experts also can do proactive reviews. So for example, the adult complexity person over time, you know, looks at every complex diabetic, every thyroid, every pituitary gland complexity adult person, and then gives feedback. So it goes both ways from a push from a consumer owner and a pull from a complexity expert so that the customer owner in the end gets everything they need and the generalist is supported so they have confidence that they're providing everything the person needs. Because the great problem with generalists is they get anxious. Well, I'm not really a deep dive expert in this particular thing. But if you have an expert at your elbow then you have confidence as a generalist that you're providing best-in-class care without having to send them somewhere else.
0: Yeah, so how big is the patient panel of an average PCP?
1: You know, the national average is between two and 3,000, which is ridiculous. You can't do intimate, know them, so forth. Our panel sizes are right around 1,000. We think that's actually still high. We'd rather be at 800 or 900. We do complexity adjustments. So if you have lots of super complex people... The actual number of humans that is a little bit lower. And then all the family-capable generalist primary care providers, in addition, support one, two, or three remote villages. So your local panel's around, let's say, 1,000 people, 900 or 1,000. And then you have another one, two, or 300 people that you're supporting remotely who have a clinic staffed by a community health aide or a PA or nurse practitioner that then you're the backup support
0: and is there anything that you learned particularly about the outreach? You know, like one of the big problems with healthcare in all industrialized nations, I'm going to assume, is that it's the patients who maybe most need your help are the exact ones who are not raising their hand and coming in.
1: Correct. So we don't get to not include anyone. Our obligation is to every single Alaska Native person within our geographic area. But remember, we have partner organizations that are doing housing and social services and education and training and all those kind of things. So we have lots of ways of sort of knowing who everyone is. And then every one of our, every one of our teams gets a scorecard. There's a lot of infrastructure behind this. We invest 10 times the usual amount in workforce development. We invest 10 times the usual amount in improvement capability. We have tons of improvement specialists and improvement advisors. We're running projects all the time to keep improving what we're doing. But the other thing we do is we invest massively in data and information management. So every single team has a very comprehensive scorecard. If, for example, your HIV numbers are the worst, everyone can see that. And then we help with outreach using the home visiting people and the intensive case management program. and. The day programs we have for chronic, mentally ill downtown. We also run the clinics in the homeless shelters in this city where we see Native and non Native people alike. So we have a lot of tentacles out into the community.
0: So I've heard people speculate the NUCA methodology would not work in mainland, you know, let's just say Medicaid populations. Because Medicaid populations are diverse communities, whereas the nuca, you know, is kind of like one community. And also that within the cultural norms of this particular community, there's in quotes respect for their elders and, and just sort of other very specific characteristics of the patient population that you serve. What do you have to say about that?
1: Because we've had some success in challenging environments and our data has sustained now for many, many years, there's quite a few people interested in what can be adapted that we've done into other locations. I would say that 95% of what we do here is directly translatable to any location in the world that's trying to do population scale primary care. There's a few things that are very specific to Alaska Native people that we do, but relatively few. All humans everywhere need companion-based, relationship-based partnering around their health journey. The challenge is how to get the trust of the people on the receiving side. So one of the things we tell every place we go is that your workforce needs to look and feel like the community you're trying to influence. So for us, it's extremely important to have very high percentage of Alaska Native hire, which we do, we obsess about it. We're now well over 60%, and the only remaining categories that aren't 100% Alaska Native hire are the professional categories where there just are not yet enough Alaska Native people available. But if your point is to connect with people and then challenge them around really hard health issues, They have to know that you know them and see them and understand their challenges. And you do that best by hiring from the community where you live and work. So a lot of safety net clinics are staffed by people who live like in the suburbs who are do-gooders, who are showing up to save people. And that's just offensive. That's paternalistic. What you need to do is hire from within the community you're trying to influence, invest massively in training and workforce development so that they're very sophisticated healthcare professionals when you need them to be, and then support it with the hard-to-get, more specialized knowledge, but deliver it through this generalized platform that looks and feels and talks and acts like the same community you're trying to influence.
0: Yeah, it sounds like um, what you're definitely advocating is to have, maybe they're called community health workers elsewhere, but it sounds like if the community is sort of diverse, you need a bunch that represented each subpopulation quite well.
1: That's right. Issues of trust, pride, dignity, and self-worth, self-confidence are the core of everything. And you get there by having people who look like them, feel like them, talk like them, understand them, and not you know, foreigners who are here to fix them. Paternalism and top-down, I'm here to save you, has never worked really well anywhere in the world. And medicine is full of that. Primary care especially is full of people who are there to save other people. And that's a problem. One of my biggest lectures I give our staff is, you know, we have a new hire. They come in, they're a new doctor or nurse, and they're putting in all these crazy hours. And they sit down with me and say, man, I'm burning out. And I say, well, what, what are you doing? And almost always it's that they have some need to be needed. And I tell them, I'll get you a therapist so you can get over it. Because we're not here to take care of your need to be needed and your need to be a savior. We're here to support people to stand on their own two feet take control of their own destiny, live their lives with our advice and support. And we do that best, by the way, through a whole team of people. So the more you're a provider and case manager, the more you need to delegate and use your whole team and not just get yourself needs to be saviors met.
0: Dr. Eb, is there anything I neglected to ask you that you feel like our audience would need to know?
1: Yeah, if I could just close by reminding people that this is all designed and driven by the community that I am hired to support. This is not me. This is not our CEO. This is the community. And it's us learning how to be community responsive. Maybe that's the final comment to make. We also spend 10 times the usual amount of time in the community, continually listening, giving feedback and hearing feedback about what we've done. So In any given month, the 10 most senior people in the company spend 20 to 40% of their work time in any given month in community settings, hearing and listening and giving feedback and getting feedback about all the things we've done because this really is driven by the people who use the system and those of us who work in the system are adapting to them and what they say works, not coming in with our all-knowing expertise and making them adapt to us.
0: Dr. Doug Eby, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today.
1: Thank you for your interest. And if people want more resources, you can go to South Central Foundation, Google it, or Google the NUCA system of care, N-U-K-A. There's a lot of resources available on our website.
0: Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com,